This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. done in recent times in churchyards as well, just for easy maintenance. They move all the stones back. The graves are still underneath here. Oh. You know, it's just so they can keep it tidy because some fall down. So people were buried here. So Sarah wasn't buried here, is that right? No, it would have been a six-way, I imagine. Hillary and Gerald Fox and their granddaughter, Meg Edwards, are with me looking at the outside of the Quaker house in Berkhamsted, England. This is where their relative, John Tall, spent quite a lot of time later in his life. 1852. 1852, 1855. So many Sarahs everywhere. There are I wonder whether there's anyone relevant. This is all around that time period. There are gravestones for prominent Quakers from the 1800s in the front yard. There's a lot of squires here. They must have been prominent here. Yeah, this is squires here. And little boys. The headstones are simple, which is what I would expect from what Hillary Fox told me about Quakerism. She learned about it from her father, who took her to Quaker meetings when she was young. Well, very simplistic life, really, without a lot of frills. Dad couldn't stand boasting of any kind. (laughs) If anybody was sort of, you know, uh, full of themselves and, oh, I've got this and I've got that, he he really couldn't take that at all. (laughs) He had quite a large house and large farm, but it was all through hard work and uh, he'd done well. This Quaker house would go on to become a place of refuge for John Tall. But back in 1814, the 30-year-old was far from calm. In fact, he was facing the gallows for his desperate attempt to forge Bank of England notes. In a minute, we'll talk about why Victorian England handled crimes so differently. The printer who had reported him originally agreed to use a copper plate to reproduce a banknote because John Tall assured him that it was for the Quaker bank. But the printer became suspicious because the bank always used another specific vendor to make their prints, not him. The police eventually arrested John Tall in 1815, and he was quickly convicted of forgery, which meant a mandatory death sentence. The forgery of Bank of England notes was not tolerated by the law, and John Tall would need to pay with his life. He would be taken to the gallows. A hood would be placed over his head. The Lord's Prayer would be read, whether he liked it or not. Then the platform below him would be pulled, and his neck would break, maybe. The rope might also slowly strangle him to death. Either way, John Tall was destined to die at the gallows. I asked crime historian Angela Buckley about a series of laws in the Victorian English legal system called the Bloody Code. 
was a body of legislative acts for different crimes, anything from grand theft, which was, was a, a value of over five shillings, which is a very small amount of money, to forgery, to murder, to, you know, sheep stealing, all kinds of things. It was called the Bloody Code. Dr. Nell Darby is a crime historian and the host of a TV series in Britain called Murder by the Sea. She says that the Bloody Code covered a litany of crimes and often the punishment was death. By the end of the, the 18th century, there were over 200 capital offences in Britain. You know, we, we were kind of very tough, especially on property-related offences. Mm-hmm. So if you attacked someone, you'd probably get a lesser sentence than if you'd stolen someone's money because that was seen as a, a more important thing. I asked both Carol Baxter and Angela why forgery was so serious in the 1800s. Forging a banknote or counterfeiting a banknote was a huge, huge offence because it undermined the financial system of Britain. And this was so incredibly important. By the early 1800s, because of the fact that notes could be forged so easily, there are estimates that in some areas, 50% of the basic one pound banknote were forged, 50%. So you can imagine the effect that has on the economy. Forgery is quite an important one because forgery was also effectively a kind of treason because, you know, if you're forging the Queen's notes, you know, the Queen's image, that's actually a very serious uh, issue, much more serious than you would imagine it to be now. It was a very, you know, it was a very serious crime and a skilled crime as well. Why was it a skilled crime? There was a very complex and sophisticated processes involved, which basically involved melting down metals. And it typically it was blacksmiths who then turned their hand to creating fake coins, if you like them. And they had whole networks of forgers. Angela said that blacksmiths often melted down pewter tankards, the big beer mugs that men used to drink from. They collected coins and melted those down, and then they would create molds. Then they would pour the molten metal into those molds to create money. It was really quite complex, and the the, uh, the forgers were considered to be craftsmen in their own right, even though, of course, it was illegal. And then you get whole layers of, of crime. There were so many ways to commit fraud in the 1800s. The thing about the 19th century is it was full of scams and con artists and people committing all sorts of crime. And we often think that today that we've got lots of fraudsters around, but it's nothing really in comparison to what was going on in the 19th century. Carol Baxter says that the English penal system just wanted to get rid of criminals quickly and efficiently. So while the authorities basically wanted to, they had a simple solution to crime, just kill everyone, execute them all. They believed that criminals were born, not made, that they imbibed criminality with their mother's milk. And the only way to get rid of them was to literally get rid of them. So John Tall was facing the noose, but in his case, he did have one advantage. Despite being excommunicated, he was still a Quaker. I asked Hillary Fox about what happened when the Quakers discovered that a man who regularly attended their meeting house was convicted of a serious crime, a crime that should have resulted in a hanging. The normal punishment was the death penalty, but because they were Quakers, they worked on the leniency uh, to imprisonment instead of the death penalty. The Quakers intervened and requested that the government not prosecute John Tall for forgery, but instead allow him to plead guilty to a lesser offense. 
I talked with Carol Baxter about how the Quakers' views on the death penalty played a part in John Tall's story. She says that their argument didn't surprise anyone in 1814 because the Quakers strongly opposed the death penalty. The Quakers said, we we can't bear to have, to execute somebody, to have somebody's execution on our conscience, because they were against capital punishment, they were against war, they were pacifists, they were heavily involved in the railroads, so to speak, in America that helped the slaves get away. Hillary Fox's granddaughter, Meg Edwards, says there may have been even more to it than just the good conscience of the Quakers. The Quakers say that I think firstly to send a Quaker off to be hanged was just not an option for them. Public image wise, not an option. The fact that the newspapers at this time were so prolific and so damning of cases like this, you know, it's kind of like early tabloid time in a way. She says it might have hurt their image in the newspapers because there were some very gossipy newspapers in the early 1800s. It wouldn't have been a good idea. I think this is also the time where in Quaker history, the Industrial Revolution was taking off and Quaker business was thriving or was in its early stages of really climbing the ladder in terms of capitalism and and business and commerce. Doesn't this seem contradictory? These are people who want to remain modest, but they are still ambitious and sometimes wealthy. It's complicated, but no matter what, John Tall and his criminal case were bad news for the Quakers. You've got families like the, you know, chocolate businesses like Cadbury's that were starting to take off properly in the in the early 1800s. And it was just not a good idea for a Quaker to be hanged. That's an understatement. But the Quakers weren't always united on every reaction to a public relations crisis. Historian Esther Zala says the religious group wasn't organized with one person at the top, like the Pope. There's a rule book that lists all sorts of things, the Quaker discipline, that gets updated every few years, at least once a generation, I think more frequently actually to this day. Um, But these Quaker meetings, the organization then, it's not like a a very well-functioning, modern, efficient company. It was mostly volunteer-run. Right, So this is like, essentially, this is a lot of volunteers who are running this, who are running the church in their free time. Whether your meeting is going to respond to any of your trespasses and to what extent will strongly depend on the local leadership, membership, your relationship to them, etc. In another favorable twist, it turns out that the English government had recently been under pressure from the public because crime was rising and executions didn't seem to be deterring criminals. So they started to get jack of the idea that anyone can go to the gallows simply for being found in possession of forged notes. So they stopped convicting people. That meant that the authorities had a bit of a problem. What did they do about it? So they got together with the Bank of England, which was the biggest bank and essentially represented the government. And they reached an agreement that if people agreed to plead guilty before the trial proceeded, they would automatically be sentenced to 14 years transportation. But if they refused to do so, if they pleaded not guilty and they were found guilty, they would be executed. So at the time of John Tall's case, forgery was still a serious crime that could result in hanging. But the government was exploring solutions to put their people at ease while still keeping the country safe, and transportation was one of the other punitive options. 
historian Angela Buckley says they could opt to ship you off to a penal colony for a certain number of years. It was a convenient way, really, of getting rid of people who broke the law uh, from the from the British perspective. That wasn't uncommon. I mean, as as you sure you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were were sent to penal colonies, so it wasn't unusual. And it wasn't unusual for for a crime such as forgery. You know, you could have you could have gone just for a relatively simple theft. Many of these people were sent to the penal colony in Australia. I asked Angela why Australia. Well, I guess because of the relationship between the Crown, you know, in in the UK, the British and Australia. And of course, we lost a penal colonies in America because of independence, uh, after the War of Independence, understandably. And so it switched to another area of the Commonwealth. And um, I don't I I don't know a great deal about Australian history. But um, but yes, it was easy to easy to make arrangements with countries with whom you have that link. I mean, it was just out of sight, out of mind, essentially. Um, you know, let's get rid of them, you know, and, and send them as far away as possible. And Australia were willing to take them. Large numbers of convicted male criminals were loaded onto huge ships leaving England called the Hulks. As they rode toward Australia, some of the men nearly starved to death, and they were crowded together, passing along various diseases. Some were there simply for stealing a loaf of bread. And the English government didn't only send men. In 1787, a 20-year-old became the first English woman to be sent to Australia for stealing merchandise worth just a shilling. Over the years, nearly 200,000 people were transported to Australia. It sounds terrible to be sent 10,000 miles away from home for who knows how many years. So in 1815, it was possible that John Tall might actually be spared from the gallows, though the option of transportation still sounds pretty severe to me. The Quakers were clear. John Tall should not die at the gallows, and they intervened in his case, requesting that the government not convict him of forgery, but instead allow him to plead guilty to a lesser crime. So they managed to get John Tall to agree to this other crime of just being in possession of counterfeit notes. It was as if he had just held on to the forged notes, but he didn't actually pay to have them produced. This took the death penalty off the table and allowed for some negotiation, some surprising negotiation. After Tall was convicted in 1815, he was sentenced to seven years in an English prison. That seemed like a better option than being transported to another continent, right? Not according to Tall, says his great-great-granddaughter. They were going to imprison him here for seven years for the banknote. Uh, crime, and he asked, he conducted his own defence and asked himself, could he be transported to Australia for 14 years? And they agreed to it. What? Why would he agree to a sentence that was twice as long? Angela Buckley and I talked about it. The fact he got 14 years is quite long because often you would get seven years in the first instance and then you might get a longer sentence if you'd had other crimes afterwards. Here's the reason Tall requested to be transported to Australia for twice as long. He didn't want to be locked in an English prison for seven years where he might die from disease or starvation or any number of causes. Also, the enterprising man or woman could actually create a good life for themselves in a penal colony. 
John's haul was very different from the typical person who was sent to Australia. Remember, he was a trained druggist and a chemist, and he knew how to concoct medicine. Tall was also middle class, and he still wanted to be upper class. He had traveled as a salesman and a merchant. He knew how to sell products. He had business savvy and sincerity and some charm. And John Tall wanted to make a go of it in Australia. And so he did. On March 12th, John Tall boarded one of the large prison hulks at Woolwich on the River Thames, southeast of London. And soon he was off, sailing toward a new life in Sydney, Australia, more than 10,000 miles away from England. The trip was long, and Carol Baxter writes that he was forced to bathe in the same water as the other prisoners. There were rats running across the ship. The other men seemed beneath him. John Tall's wife, Mary, and his two sons remained in England, but he promised to send for them as soon as he could. Would he, though? Most men in penal colonies didn't. They made new lives and forgot about their old ones. What kind of family man was John Tall? John Tall was now in Australia at the penal colony. I wondered what happened when he arrived. Was he plotting something else, some easy way to make money? He went to Australia and at this stage, the mask was still off and he saw opportunities. He actually was very clever. When you arrived in Australia as a criminal, they asked you your occupation. Of course, in all a lot of these people, the occupation was thief, but they couldn't say thief, so they had to give another occupation. But John Tall actually had one. Commercial traveler, it indicated he was one of the specials. The agents asked Tall about his occupation. And he was smart because he knew that being a trained druggist would make him valuable in a colony rife with disease. But he didn't mention it yet. That would help him soon. But first, he needed to take on some menial work. In Australia, initially he was an assigned servant to other people. So he was just an employee in their houses. I mean, at one point he was teaching school. So again, very intelligent man, very capable man, apparently a very good teacher. But then he was allowed to move on to a job that proved to be pivotal. So they assigned him to the government hospital, to the dispensary there, as not as the druggist, but as an assistant there. But of course, as I said, the mask was still off. John Tall couldn't stay out of trouble, even in a penal colony. He stole some goods from the hospital. And when he was caught, he was punished. 
and he stole some goods and he was sent away to a secondary penal settlement where he perhaps saw the error of his ways and seemingly he also got tuberculosis. So when he came, yes, dreadful disease, when, and also a very important disease in his life story, of course. Tuberculosis was a horrid, painful, highly contagious disease that had killed scores of people throughout history. And in the early 1800s, tuberculosis was often a death sentence. He contracted tuberculosis. He ended up in Sydney Hospital for a while, himself, about five months, I think it was. As he lay in his hospital bed, John Tall watched the nurses and doctors administer medicines to their patients. He was given medicine too. Then he realized something. He had an epiphany. In my book, All That Is Wicked, I talk about how Edward Ruloff made his supposedly incredible discovery about human language in an unusual place. He was serving a 10-year sentence for kidnapping his wife. Ruloff benefited from the Auburn State Prison's system of silence in the 1840s. Inmates had their own private cells. They weren't allowed to speak to each other, even during meals. All of that quiet that lasted a decade gave Ruloff a chance to regroup, ponder, and then write. His revelations changed his goals forever. I guess sometimes to have a life-changing revelation, all you need is a bit of rest. John Tall propped himself up in the bed and he noticed the huge amount of pills that were being delivered to the hospital. That was his epiphany. He saw an opportunity. He realized that there was a market out there for pharmaceutical goods and special goods like that, that somebody with his sort of skills would be able to sell as a retail pharmacy. So John Tall decided to change his life once he was allowed more freedom. He wanted to not just make the best of his time in Australia, but to leave the colony in a better position. He wanted to thrive, not just survive. So he then behaved very well. The mask came back on. He behaved very well. He was highly recommended. And somehow, and this is something that we, I was never, never able to fully establish, he somehow got funding and was able to send orders to England to have pharmaceutical goods sent out to Australia. And he set up Australia's first retail pharmacy and he became a very wealthy man. Tall recognized that the country needed a private facility that could be a one-stop shop for medicine and goods, rather than ordering from individual manufacturers. Tall was an outstanding druggist and businessman. He was reliable, hardworking, resourceful, and ambitious. And then he ran the pharmacy and started to become exceedingly wealthy. And what he saw was a massive niche market. So not just for pharmaceutical goods, but for spices and for chocolates and for all sorts of indulgences. It was almost like a CVS in America or a Boots in Britain. When I was young, pharmacies only really stocked medical products. Today, they stock everything. In America, of course, you call them drugstores, we call them pharmacies, but The principle's the same. John Tall had become an entrepreneur in a penal colony. 
Well, he saw the advantage of this in the 1820s. So he had a very nice life. He then invested in property. So he didn't just have his business and gradually, eventually he sold his business. So he invested in property. He acted as an importer-exporter. So the man had big visions and big capabilities and was rewarded handsomely for it. He did make a lot of money, which is impressive considering where he was. But like so many successful entrepreneurs, Tall saw a need and he filled it. Meg Edwards says he was a man with so much promise, even though we know it wouldn't last. I think this is where it's really reflective of his character. It was unusual for someone to be shipped off to Australia and to make it as big as he made it. That was really unusual. It was a slow burn, I think. He was not thriving at first. There's a bit of conflict between um, being resourceful, I think, and being scheming. And I think this is where he was probably a bit more resourceful than scheming. I thought that was very innovative. Tall took potentially adverse circumstances and leveraged them to his benefit. He was able to use his his knowledge of very specific things, like he had pharmaceutical knowledge. He was clearly very clever. He's very business savvy. He saw, if you like, a gap in the market. He went for it. I think he also had friends in high places, or he made friends in high places. After a few years, he was able to really establish himself and make himself indispensable. He was useful to people and was very quickly able to make a better life for himself out there than, than he had here, which is incredible. It sounds like being sent to a penal colony was actually a gift. Sometimes it is a gift for people to be forced to start over. He was able to cut ties, at least for the time being, and kind of start afresh. He was he was handed quite a nice clean slate. He definitely made the most of it. I think what comes after is fascinating. Meg's talking about the series of terrible decisions that would ultimately doom John Tall. But we're not to that part of the story yet. Australia was good to tall, and Angela Buckley says he wasn't the only person to find success there. It certainly is the case that many individuals were very successful in Australia because once they were free, they were able to build businesses and do all kinds of things. Carol Baxter says that living in a penal colony could be actually more productive than being free and at home in England. Well, that was part of the problem with penal servitude, that these people came out to Australia and they did have a better life. Early convicts, they got grants of land. How would somebody in the UK get a grant of land? All they had to do as part of their penal servitude was they had to work for part of the day for the government and then the rest of the day they worked for themselves because in the early days they didn't have any jails and things for the convicts. So the convicts had to support themselves. By the time John Tall had built his businesses, the English had started building barracks to house people who were convicted of a crime. But prior to that, there wasn't the constraints imposed on the convicts when they were transported to Australia, as you imagine. It was a big outdoor colony, essentially, a big outdoor prison. So those who were willing to work hard succeeded. Some of these people, when you look at land, were worth billions of dollars in today's money. And they were convicts. Carol says that if you were clever and opportunistic, you had opportunities in Australia that you were never offered in England. These people hadn't had the opportunities in the UK. It was overpopulated. 
One of the arguments for establishing Australia, or in those days, New South Wales, as a penal settlement, it was a way of sending some of its people elsewhere to reduce the population issues. Because when there weren't enough jobs and everything, people naturally had to resort to crime to survive. It's the classic survival instinct. So give them opportunities and guess what? They don't commit crimes. I wondered if most of these people returned to England once their sentence was over. Angela Buckley says sometimes. You know, it was actually many people who stayed and sometimes maybe brought their families over afterwards. Uh, did have their roots, you know, society today still have their roots in that time. John Tall is such a confusing person to research, a man with drastically conflicting characteristics that I'll never quite understand. Was he a reliable family man and entrepreneur, as he now appeared, or a calculating and sneaky criminal? I asked Hillary Fox if any of these traits of his were passed down through the generations in her family. You know, there are people I interview who see qualities, both negative and positive, Mm. linked to these types of stories. There are people who say, well, this actually explains some of the mental illness that we have in our family. And there are people who say, I, you know, I didn't realize this person was a, a pharmacist and we have all of these, you know, Meg told me there are pharmacists in your family. So there's, I do wonder about links, not the bad link, but he obviously was incredibly resourceful. Yes, he was. He's quite clever in some way. Because the pharmacist link, yes, one of George's brothers, Ted, mm-hmm. He was a pharmacist. That's on the right side of her family. Hmm. So you're right that that was a link. It wasn't discussed, of course. Also, he was a collector, I believe, and he had some stuffed birds. Whether that was just a general thing in Victorian times, Hmm. I'm not sure. But my father had a a big collection of stuffed birds (laughs) big glass cases, (laughs) but he he was just a collector generally, I think. Another link between John Tall and Hillary's family, a very strong one, is the link that saved his life, Quakerism. Carol Baxter says that when he first arrived to the penal colony, Tall rejected his former religion. He initially abandons Quakerism. As I said, he committed a crime, he became a pharmacist. But then things changed. And it appears that it's around that point that he started to don the Quaker garb again and become the pious man with his these and thous. His first job was for a Quakeress. So really, most of his life, he'd been influenced by Quakers and had obviously absorbed it and thought that was the way he wanted to go. He was philanthropic. He gave away money, you know, when he had it. Uh, When he was wealthy in Australia, he gave money for the building of a Quaker meeting house. So I I guess that was Quaker ethics. It wasn't just a Quaker house. It was the first Quaker house in the country. He essentially established the Quaker Church in New South Wales. because (laughs) Wasn't that amazing that he did that? Yes, yes, because what happened was these Quaker missionaries, and I guess one would call them evangelists, went to Tasmania and established Quakerism in Tasmania. And then they came to New South Wales and knew nobody. And then they 
met up with John Tall and we can see again with this aspect of his personality that he saw them as his pathway to Quaker acceptance. Hmm. So he had the first Quaker meeting in his house and then he decided to build a Quaker meeting house, which he did. I found it hard to believe that a man who had been excommunicated from the Quakers in England would have such a strong voice in Australia. But author Esther Zala says she's not at all surprised. The communication between Australia and England probably wasn't great at the time. So I can totally imagine that still a fairly young colony at the time, you know. So there's not that many colonists around and um, probably not that much of a religious infrastructure, at least for Quakerism. Um, So I could imagine that that would have been fairly easy for somebody with with the ambition and the personality, I think, to to be a sort of a leader, etc., The penal colony allowed men to send for their families in England, but as I said earlier, many chose not to. Maybe they didn't find Australia to have the promise that England offered and they planned to return. Maybe they wanted a new start with no family ties. But John Tall seemed to miss his wife and kids while he was serving his sentence. So after nine years in Sydney, he sent for them. I told Meg Edwards that I was a little surprised by that decision. Many of these people who were sent to penal colonies Mm -hmm. in the United States or Australia or wherever just sort of said goodbye to their families. And he sent for them, which cost money. So he sent for his uh, wife and his, for Mary and his two sons to come over to Australia. So, you know, that is not starting a a new life. Mm -hmm. So what does that say to you about him? It's it's difficult to say, but I, I know if I was sent off if I committed a crime and was sent off to Australia, I think I'd, I'd find it difficult to not send for my family. I think that feels quite natural to me. Obviously, it was a very different time and these were very different circumstances, but I think um, perhaps there is something in there and that it fit his image. It fit his image of a family man and a businessman and someone who was respectable and someone who was reliable. Mary and the boys lived with him in Sydney and they became prominent in the community once again. So his wife and the kids came out and again, he was doing things like getting on the board of banks with Governor Macquarie, who had a very progressive attitude towards the convicts. He felt that if they had done their time and they proved their worth, then they should be treated accordingly. But soon, once again, John Tall's desire for money took hold and the mask of the pious Quaker began to slip despite his standing with the group. He, by that stage, was actually having people steal from his shop. Tall had begun, essentially, committing insurance fraud by paying thieves to steal his goods so he could claim the losses but then get them back. But then one thief didn't bring back the goods. That makes sense. He was a thief, and I'm not sure what John Tall was thinking. The decision to hire a thief seems haphazard. And then Tall did something brazen— He took the thief to court to get his money back. That must have been awkward. And one of the funny stories with him was the fact that when he took them to court for theft, he had to state an oath that he would tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. But Quakers refused to profess oaths because they are supposed to always be telling the truth. So he tripped up when he was testifying against the thief. 
he couldn't proceed with the prosecution because he couldn't give his own oath. So he actually then took that bit of his Quaker hat off and the next time around he stood up in court and said, yes, I'm telling the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Quaker when convenient, I suppose. Absolutely. It seems that the thief was convicted after Tall told his story on the stand. It was more proof that Tall could likely get away with many things, and if he didn't, that he could make the best of a bad situation. Say what you want about his character and his mask up until this point in his life. At that penal colony, he did something extraordinary. John Tall helped bring Quakerism to Australia. Now, about Mary and the boys. Tall was influential as a Quaker. Did he keep them there because they helped his image as a pious man? Meg Edwards doesn't think so. At that stage, he had given up an awful lot to be with Mary and to to have those children. Before he was sent to Australia, he had been kicked out of the Quakers because she wasn't a Quaker. I'm sure a lot of it was to be a good father and to ensure that his sons had a good start in life. Whether that was the right move to move them over, I'm not convinced. They were probably quite useful to him as well, the sons. Yeah, I think, I think it makes sense, I do, to move your family over, but it absolutely was unusual. John Tall, Mary, and the two boys all seemed to do well in Australia. Tall with his businesses and his Quaker meeting house. But then, just as things seemed about perfect, everything began to change, and tragedy after tragedy would soon strike. Some weren't Tall's fault at all, but others absolutely were. There would be four deaths in Tall's life in just a few years. Who would die and why? And that's where the next part of the story begins. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right... He'd really only just been accepted when he was booted out. The astonishing thing, though, is after a short time of absence where he got over his humiliation, he licked his wounds, so to speak, he went back. And that is extraordinary. He went back and attended their services. Unfortunately, it was the time of things like the cholera epidemic. Whether it's convenience or whether it's maybe a little bit of arrogance, he probably thought he was the best person for the job to look after her. He knew what he was talking about. He certainly knew where to find particular medicines. He looked after her to the point of where it made sense to bring in other people. And they brought in a nursemaid to look after his wife. If you love a good, real ghost story, my audiobook, The Ghost Club, is available wherever you get your audiobooks. I can't wait to tell you the real story about the world's most famous ghost hunter, who was the head of the world's most famous ghost club, and how he investigated England's most famous haunted house. Please also check out my book, All That Is Wicked, which is a deep dive into the criminal mind. 
This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Natalie Wren. Editors Jason Whaling and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Researcher Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.